So it's all here. The story of our time with the barcode. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkoff. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee for president, has been a major fixture in politics for nearly half a century since his election to the Senate in 1972. In the fall of 2017, the former vice president came to the LBJ Presidential Library, where I spoke to him about the values instilled into him by his parents and how they shaped him, why he got into politics in the first place, and the marked changes he has seen in Washington and in the American electorate. I want to start, uh, Mr. Vice President, by talking about your background, your origins. Uh, you are a product of hard scrabble, Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, product two of two very strong parents. Talk about your parents and the values that they instilled in you that have guided your public career. I, uh, I learned my values at my grandpa's kitchen table and uh, at my dad's dining room table. Um, for my father, everything was, uh, he fundamentally believed that, and he was a high school educated, well-read, well-read, graceful man. But he thought that every single solitary person was entitled to be treated with dignity, and he meant it, with dignity. My dad would say, Joey, you got to be a man of your word. Without your word, you're not a man. My dad, when I lost my wife and daughter, he loved my wife, my deceased wife, and my present wife, who I met five years later and saved my life. And my dad, when I guess I was feeling down, came over to the house, and he was in his mid-70s, and he had gone to one of these card shops, you know, where you can buy greeting cards and you can buy those little little uh, um, things you put on your desk in a glass case with, with, with sayings in them. Or, or, and, uh, and he brought me over a, uh, uh, from a card shop a glass case that's about seven, eight inches long and uh, a little frame. And uh, it had two frames inside of Hagar the Horrible, a cartoon <laughs> character. And Hagar was the Viking. And his ship had been struck by lightning. It was going down. You could see the prow had been broken. And he's looking up at, the, at God and saying, why me, God? And the next frame, a voice from heaven comes and says, why not? That was my dad. No, my dad believed that you never complain and never explain. My dad believed that the phrase I most heard, I was a relatively good athlete. Remember the first time I got knocked out on a football field when I was in playing grade school, they call CYO football. First thing I remember is my dad leaning and whispering to me and said, Joey, if nothing's broken, get up, Joey. Get up. <laughs> get up. 
And so in my house, it was about getting up. And my mother would say, and I really mean this, and Ben met my mother, and a lot of you got to see my mother when we got nominated. My mother was this sweet little Irish Catholic lady, Catherine Eugenia Finnegan Biden, who had a backbone like a ramrod. And she'd say, say, look at me, Joey. And I mean this sincerely. Look at me. Remember, you're defined by your courage and you're redeemed by your loyalty. You're defined by your courage and you're redeemed by your loyalty. My mother believed the greatest virtue of all was courage because she would say, without it, you could not love with abandon. And so I was raised in my faith and my home with this notion that uh, the world doesn't know you're living. You got to get up. There is no excuse. The other phrase my mom would use, she says, as long as you're alive, you have an obligation to strive. And you're not dead till you've seen the face of God. And there's no malarkey, as my mother would say. I really mean it because I was one of those lucky guys, and I'll end with this, that was raised in a household that I really mean this, my word is a Biden. Everybody, every one of my friends wanted my mom as their mom. No, I really mean it. She was the mother confessor for everyone. You'd have to be home by midnight and your dates in high school. We lived in a little split level house, about 2,500 square feet. You walk in the back door into the dining room and immediately to the left was a little opening. There was a small kitchen and you'd walk through an archway into the living room. And you'd walk in the back door in the dining room with my mom when there was a little kitchen table in the corner. You couldn't see. You could see the one chair furthest out. And if she was hearing one of our friend's confessions, she'd go like this. As you walked in, she'd go. <laughs> Keep moving. So uh, it was, uh, um, I, I was really lucky. I, I, uh, and I, I really mean it. I was really lucky uh, that... Uh, I had the parents and, uh, and grandfather that I had. So uh, I'm not sure I've lived up to their expectation. I hope I have. But it's, uh, it's about honor. It's about duty. You were senator of your home state of Delaware at the age of 30, the youngest you can be as a U.S. senator. Uh, you came into Washington during the Nixon years, 1973. How did the Washington you saw then look like against today's Washington? How has it changed? Well, you know, uh, um, I read these biographies of me now, and they say about how Biden always knew he wanted to be a senator, always knew he wanted to be president, always knew he'd run for president someday, et cetera. That's not true. <laughs> um, I got involved because of Lyndon Johnson, believe it or not. Before because no one has done more for civil rights in America beyond Dr. King than Lyndon Baines Johnson. And in 1968, I was, uh, I was trying to, I was involved with a group of people who were mainstream Democrats to try to reform the Democratic Party. And, uh, and uh, I got back from law school and my city was in flames. My city was the only city in the United States of America since the Civil War to be occupied by the military for nine months. National Guard in every corner. We had a very conservative Democratic governor. 
Half my state talks like y'all do down here. The Delmarva Peninsula, for real. And we're trying to change the nature of the party because our governor wasn't very big on civil rights, the Democrat. And so I left the white shoe law firm that I'd gotten a job with that uh, um, took a chance on me, the oldest law firm in the state. One day after being in federal court, walked across, we call Rodney Square. If you do any corporate work, you probably handle cases in Delaware. More major corporate cases are handled in the Delaware Chancery Court than any court in America. And I walked across to the basement of a catty-corner uh, building, and I walked in, and there was a guy named Franny Kearns. I said, I want to be a public defender. He looked at me, he said, what's the matter with you? Aren't you with Prickett, Ward, Burton, Sanders? And I said, I, I, this, this, I can't do it. My city's in trouble. And so I started off as a public defender, and, uh, and I ended up representing people accused of burning down the city, which they did not do. And... You know, that's what I got involved with. One thing led to another. I had done a lot of work trying to recruit people to run for the Senate, so I, I knew the state well. And I ran on a, on a program that I sometimes talked to Linda Robb about that I, I think maybe this is where I was odd. So I ran on the, on, on the program as saying, we have a crisis in confidence in America. Because the country was more divided on issues then in 72 than they are today, on issues. The Vietnam War was ripping families apart. The women's movement was viewed as some kind of radical thing, not a joke. The environmental movement was viewed as a plot by a bunch of greens to try to, try to uh, go after corporate America. The list went on. But the political system I got elected with 3,100 votes, landslide. And uh, I came to Washington. At the time I came to Washington, there were still a lot of people there who were the old segregationists. James O. Eastland, Homan Talmadge, you know, the whole, uh, you know, one of the meanest, smartest guy I ever met, McClellan from Arkansas, and John Stennis, who became a supporter and friend of mine, et cetera. And as Vicious as the fights were still over civil rights in 72, when the debate was over, we'd all go down and have lunch or dinner together. The system worked because we didn't go, we went after each other's judgment, but not after the motive. So when I got elected in 72, I didn't want to go to the Senate because I said my family had just my wife and daughter had been killed between and November the 18th, I mean December the 18th. And my two boys were very, very badly injured and still hospitalized. But a group of senators came to see me, including Lloyd Benson, and came and said, look, just come for six months. We need you to organize. I was so foolish that I thought they really meant it. We had 58 Democratic senators. They didn't need me to organize. But I really believed it, so I said I'd come. And I was supposed to come, as Ben will remember, and I didn't show up the day I was supposed to be sworn in. So the next day, Senator Mansfield sent up the Secretary of the Senate and swore me in in the hospital. And I went down very reluctantly. And President John, excuse me, uh, um, uh, Senator Mansfield, the majority leader, would have me come to his office once a week and give me an assignment. No senator gets an assignment. But I actually thought senators got assignments. <laughs> no, I really did. And 
what he was doing, it took me about two months to figure it out, is basically taking my pulse, see if I was okay, how I was. He'd always sit behind his desk with a corn cob pipe, very seldom ever lighted, and he'd give me an assignment and talk to me. One day in the end of May, I came walking through those doors, those double doors you see all the time on C-SPAN. Going, I walked down to the well of the Senate on my way to meet Senator Mansfield for my three o'clock meeting. I'd always walk to the well of the Senate and check with the secretary of the Senate when the last vote was going to be so I could get in the train and go home and see my boys. And as I walked in, Jesse Helms, who got elected the same year I did from North Carolina, was excoriating two, friend, two people who became very close friends of mine. One still is. Bob Dole, Republican, and Teddy Kennedy. He was excoriating them for for introducing the precursor to the Americans with Disabilities Act. He was standing there saying the government has no responsibility to the handicapped and why should you impose on business people to have to have access into their business and buy taxpayer? And I thought, God, this is heartless. And I walked in, I sat down in front of Mansfield. I guess I looked angry. And he's always spoken clipped tones. He said, what's the matter, Joe? And then I went after Jesse Helms and saying he had no social redeeming value. He did this. I couldn't understand how. No, I really did. He sat there and listened. And then he looked at me and taught me the best lesson I ever learned in public life. He said, Joe, what would you say if I told you? Two and a half years ago, Dot and Jesse Helms were sitting in their living room in Raleigh, North Carolina, reading the Raleigh Observer. And there was a photograph of a 14-year-old young man in braces from his chest down his legs, steel braces, both legs, and steel crutches, standing there saying, all I want for Christmas is someone to love me and take me home. He said, Joe, what would you say if I told you Dot and Jesse Helms adopted that young man as their own? I said, I'd feel foolish, Mr. Leader. He said, well, he did, Joe. And he said, I've learned something always appropriate to question another man or woman's judgment. It's never appropriate to question their motive because you don't know their motive. And that's why I'm going to say something that is unnecessarily self-serving. That's why every single time you saw a problem in the Senate or the House in the eight years we're here, in the 36 years I was in the Senate, I get, I'm the guy that gets called up to try to settle it because I have enormous respect for my Republican as well as my Democratic colleagues. And I've never questioned their judgment. Today, it's gotten mean and visceral. And it's always about your judgment. If you disagree with me, it's you're in the pocket of big business, or you're in the pocket of this, or you're unethical. And guys, in this democracy, the way the founders separated powers wisely, is nothing can happen without consensus. And it's virtually impossible to reach consensus after you've attacked the integrity of another man or woman. You can't get to go. That's what's changed. Think of the nature of the debate the last 12 years. You're a bad person. Mm -hmm. You're an ethical person. You're not a Christian. You're un-American. And so, folks, the thing that's changed is that plus one other thing. Is we don't know each other. Ask your Republican or Democratic colleagues 
in the house. Ask them if they know the wife of or the child of their colleague. There used to be a dining room in the Senate. There was a private dining room where I would be able to take you as a guest. But then there was a super private dining room right across the hall with two large dining room tables and a buffet, a Democratic table and a Republican table. Ted Kennedy came to me three months in and said, Joe, you've got to go to lunch over there. You want to learn about the Senate. Sit there from a quarter after 12 until 1.30. You'll learn more than you'll ever learn anywhere else. When you get to know that a man, a senator's wife, has breast cancer, or a senator's uh, husband is, is, uh, has an alcohol problem, or a son or daughter has a drug problem, or a mother and father lost everything through bankruptcy. It's hard to dislike that person. You get to know them. You get to know who they are. It doesn't change your view on their views, but you actually get to know people. Because now the worry is, do I lose a primary? The Democratic Party that's forcing people more to the left, the Republican Party to the right. When President and I, and on my recommendation, I didn't have to, he was going there anyway, decided to name to the Supreme Court a year out almost someone who was a federal judge and over 42 Republicans had said how good a person he was before this. We were doing it because in a divided government, my argument was you make a compromise. You don't try. The Senate has a right to have their view. Merrick Garland. And they didn't have a hearing. Wouldn't even have a hearing. So I called up a dozen of my Republican colleagues who I know well, my friends. And I said, you can't do this. It's damaging the institution. And with one exception, I got the same answer. I know, Joe, it's wrong. But Joe, if I go ahead and do this, I'll have a primary. The Koch brothers will drop six to eight, ten million dollars in my race. I'll be in trouble, Joe. It's no excuse not to have the courage to do the right thing, but it's an example of how my and Democrats are no different in that regard. So look what's happened. We now have an environment where when things are going bad and people are justifiably frightened and scared, that we have this appeal, this populism, nationalism. Do you think that, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, do you think that the team running the show now really cares about poor folk? No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not being, I'm, I mean, I think they care, don't get me wrong. But do you think their populist views are about that? This is as old as history. When people are frightened, they don't know what to do, and things aren't going well for them, find someone to blame. The other. That immigrant took my job. That black guy used so much for and not for me. That woman who you pushed ahead just because she's a woman. 
Think of what's happened. And it's not just in the United States. It's around the world. And this is old as history. And what's in the process is suffering. I'll end with this. The institutions. Our founding fathers, I suffer from having taught constitutional law for 22 years. But all kidding aside, Everything about who we are as a nation has been designed to limit the aggregation of power, to prevent the abuse of power. That's why there's three equal branches of government. What has been the first attack for the last two years? First of all, on the press. Delegitimize the press and you've opened up a great highway. And then go after the courts as being illegitimate. Jerome Frank wrote a famous piece called Law and the Modern Mind. He talked about the judicial myth, the need in a society like ours to believe that and have it reinforced that the justice system is dispensing justice. So what's happened now? There's been an overwhelming attempt and targeted to delegitimize the courts, to delegitimize the press. And I heard a particular person quote Jefferson. He's never read Jefferson. No, I mean this sincerely. Jefferson said, and I'm paraphrasing, give me a choice between this government and democracy or a free press. I'll choose the free press to protect my independence and security. And so, guys, this is real. This goes beyond the present president. And it goes beyond what I'm worried is happening, may happen in my own party. So what's changed is the political system has broken down. We've got to change it for our own safety's sake. You talk about Trump's ability and his populist campaign to foment fear. You are as in touch with the everyman as any politician. Uh, you have a reputation for that. It might be part of your, your background uh, as a, a son of Scranton. But, uh, <laughs> but did the backlash that we heard so thunderously from the so-called forgotten men and women surprise you in 2016? Um should be more humble and say yes, but it didn't. Um, I, uh, I made 83 campaign events for Hillary. I think she would have been a fine president. I really mean that. I did 83 events. For and um, thousands and thousands of people. But I told my staff, my key political staff, and Barack, who disagreed with me, about five weeks out, I thought we were going to lose. Because, and my staff was worried that what I'm about to say would offend the press. For example, the Shorenstein School of Public Policy at Harvard University did a study 
Of all the words uttered in the campaign covered by the press, as well as by the candidates, and only 4% of the words uttered were about an issue. 4%. Let's assume they're off by 100%, 300%. I really mean this. And I think we so vastly underestimated the Trump campaign and Mr. Bannon. The things that would have been totally disqualifying in the minds of every elected Democrat and Republican, no matter how tough and rough they were, were able to be said by and done by the president. And you wonder why he didn't try to explain his way out of that. But think about it. Talking about touching women in private places, talking about all the things that happened. John McCain, he likes heroes that uh, didn't get captured, etc. But think what it did. It took the eye off the ball. I remember going into... I, I, I would sit down with Hillary's campaign staff once a week, and they'd assign me places to go based on where I had some strength with millennials, with working-class folks, with the African-American community, et cetera. So I spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, and Virginia. And um, I remember I had sort of an epiphany flying to I think it was Lorraine, Ohio. Don't hold me to the town, but one of the many towns in Ohio. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me. Think about it, Joe. No coverage of any of the issues. Hillary had a clear, whether you agreed or not, a clear plan about how she was going to pay for education, and 12 years was not enough. She had a clear plan why, you know, in probably in Austin, I know in Philadelphia, Houston, major cities in America, if you have two kids and you want decent childcare, it costs 20,000 bucks a year. Working women are pretty smart. Educated women are pretty smart. Unless you're getting paid a hell of a lot more than $20,000 a year, it's not worth the effort. And so if you had a plan to treat that as a deduction like corporation, you can legitimately deduct business expenses. But no one, this audience really informed people. Maybe some, some, some of your are yellow dog Democrats, maybe some of your Republicans. But you can't tell me what, hit, what Hillary's plans were. It wasn't because she didn't have them. Soon as it start, he'd turn and talk about Bill Clinton, or he'd talk about, um, you know, uh, secret uh, servers. And look at his son and his son-in-law. I mean, he'd talk about training the son. Now, by the way, I'm not attacking them. I'm just saying what... I know, I know, I really mean it. It, it, it it's, much of it is irrelevant. But you never got to the issues. We never got to the issues. And it was clear to me, and I'll be blunt with you. For you Democrats in the audience, I hope you're not offended, but there's a false debate now going on in my party about having to choose between civil rights, civil liberties, and working class people. That's like asking me to choose between my heart and my soul. I take a backseat to no one. 
on civil rights and civil liberties and human rights, women's rights. No one. But I'm also, according to the polls, one of the most popular people in the country with working class people, because where I come from, they're not at odds. To make the point, the campaign, I was up in Northeast Ohio at an automobile plant, a Ford plant, with several thousand people. And I asked him to send a serious campaign person with me. And I started off with these, these hard-working, middle-class, in terms of salary, men and women. I imagine very few, if any, had a college degree. And I said, you know, we have to elect Hillary Clinton because it's about time women made as much as men for the same work. Place went nuts, clapping. And I remember all the liberals looking around going, what that's about? They don't get it. Guess what? When your wife's not getting paid, your standard of living is going down. They all had wives who worked. They were angry that they were getting paid fairly. There's no conflict. I said, and any man who raises his hand to a woman is a coward. They went nuts, cheering this working class Democrats, some of whom left us, because they have, son, they have daughters, they have moms, they have sisters. This is a false choice. But we never got to it. And now there's this ascent. I said this, this, this false debate. The American people are decent. Whenever average Americans have been given half a chance, they have never, 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 never let their country down. Does anyone think the reason we have EITC or, or food stamp kind of programs is because of the wealthy? It's the middle class. Middle-class Americans are the ones who have said, this is what we should do. Their values are, they really, think about it. What defines us as Americans? You can't define an American based on race, race, ethnicity, religious beliefs. There's only one thing. A fundamental commitment, whether you're naturalized or native-born, to the notion that's contained in the Constitution. It's about ideas. We hold these truths self-evident. Sounds corny, but think about it. That all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty. So that's what Americans believe in their gut. There are prejudiced people. There are mean people. But the vast majority of the American people are really decent. There used to be a basic bargain in America that Democrats and Republicans subscribed to. That if you participated in the success of the enterprise with which you were engaged, you got to share in the benefits. Now granted, globalization has affected that. Digitalization has affected some of it. But guys, since the end of World War II to 1978, Productivity grew 92%. Wages grew 92%. From 78 to 2016, productivity grew 68%. Wages grew 8%. 8%. CEOs are good people. 
used to make 40 times their average employee when Reagan was president. Now it's 400 times as much. Since when are the only job creators stockholders? My father, who managed an automobile dealership, never owned it. Created a whole hell of a lot of jobs selling those cars. But that bargain is now broken. Our time is growing short, uh, but I, I do want to ask you, I want to go back to this president and, and to an article that you wrote right after... Right after Charlottesville in the Atlantic Month that you wrote, we are living through a battle for the soul of our nation. And you went on to write about our president, his contempt for the U.S. Constitution and willingness to divide us knows no bounds. I'm wondering what actions of President Trump gives you the greatest concern? Look, Barack and I have been out of office now for nine months or whatever it's been, 10 months, nine months. And we've really tried to give the incoming administration a chance to get started, just like W did, just like his father did, just like Clinton did. It's the right thing to do. They won the election. And so if you notice, you haven't heard me commenting on much of what the president has done in terms of uh, foreign policy, in terms of uh, national security policy. I have fundamental disagreements with him. I believe that I should never be critical of a president, no matter how fundamentally I disagree with him when I'm abroad. And I can't be with other heads of state, not other, with heads of state, Stating a position contrary to the president, it's not my role to set that foreign policy. So I've kept my mouth shut about my fundamental disagreements with the president on so many things. But the one thing I can't keep my mouth shut on is when we attack fundamental principles that define us as a country. Not, forget what he said, comparing, not speaking out unequivocally with no, no comma or semicolon about Nazis marching in our streets is reprehensible. Because... And for the longest time, I've given the president the benefit of the doubt because he, he doesn't know public office. He, he was a businessman. So I gave him a lot of benefit of the doubt saying that, well, he doesn't understand that president's words matter. No, no, but, but I, I mean, just utterances, they matter. I had to go over when Helmut Schmidt was the chancellor of Germany. Ed Muskie was Secretary of State. Jimmy Carter was President. And it was about intermediate-range ballistic missiles. And I had to go over and explain. I was asked by the President and the Secretary of State to go sit with Helmut Schmidt and try to work out a modus vivendi with the Germans. 
which are important. I'll never forget what Schmidt said. We were sitting across a very small conference table in his office. And he got frustrated with me. He said, Joe, God's truth, Joe, Joe, you don't understand. When America sneezes, the world catches a cold. When America sneezes, the world catches a cold. When a president, look, what, we have the strongest military in the history of the world. The finest fighting force in the history of the world. Not hyperbole. We respect it, and we are feared by those who would do us harm. But the reason why we're able to lead the world is not the example of our power, but the power of our example. That's what has made the rest of the world repair to us. That's what allows us to put together alliances. That's what allows us to generate consensus in the world. If there's anything we need today is America's leadership and a continuation of the liberal world order set up after World War II that's provided so much prosperity and security for us. But it's under siege now. So when the president says things, like complimenting Putin for being tough. What do you do if you are the prime minister or president in Romania, Poland, Hungary, the Baltic states, the Balkans? What do you think? You're sitting there. What do you think about when a president says, I'm not sure about this NATO commitment unless everybody's paid up. What do you think the United States will do in that circumstance when little green men, Russian soldiers, in uniform without insignia, cross the border? Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, large Russian-speaking populations, Ukraine, Look what's going on in Romania, Hungary, today. What happens is, you decide, since you're weak and the neighbor of the bear is breathing down your neck, and it looks like the United States has given them a pass, you make accommodations. You make an accommodation. What Putin is all about today is taking down that world order. He's not trying to reestablish the Soviet empire. He doesn't have the ability to do that. Right now, but for nuclear weapons, Russia's a third-rate power. They're losing population of down to 145 million people. They have the highest rate of alcoholism and AIDS. They don't know how to get the oil out of the ground that they have. For real. For real. So what do you do in that circumstance? You undermine the institutions that were built internationally 
to prevent the abuse of power. NATO, the EU, the ASEAN countries. Because what do the Chinese and the Russians want? They want to maintain a sphere of influence as wide as it can be without the ability of any collective group to do anything about it. So what happens if they break down NATO or the EU? They deal with then 28 small countries or medium-sized countries, none of whom have the power or capability to resist their use of corruption, energy, oligarchs, to undermine democracy in the region. That's what this is all about. So, when the president embraces this crazy man in the Philippines who is absolutely going out and having extrajudicial killings, what does you think that message that sends in South Asia? Not a joke. I mean, think about it. And when the president of the United States compares those who are opposing Nazis and white supremacists in the historic town of Charlottesville it allows people to crawl out from under the rocks. It gives them license. They're a small percentage of the American people. The president's words matter. And I can't remain silent. I cannot remain silent on those fundamental issues. Because think about it, folks. Did any of you think these elements would go quietly into the night? Do you think that if we didn't apply the total moral disapprobation of society to white supremacists, Nazis, separatists, that they would go away? And so what happens now? People think they can say things they wouldn't have said two years ago because they think society will tolerate it. And it sends an awful message, an awful message around the world. Reagan was right. We are the shining city on the hill. But you cannot, you cannot, you cannot forsake the fundamental, elemental values of this country. Because I said, we really do think we're imperfect. We haven't made it yet. But ultimately, we always have responded to Lincoln's call to appeal to our better angels. Sometimes it takes time. But my Lord, if a president remains silent or unintentionally or intentionally, gives sustenance to these people crawling out from the fields and the darkness, from under the rocks, it's dangerous. But it's also dangerous for our world leadership. It's not who we are as a people, and I refuse to remain silent about it.
Mr. Vice President, we began this conversation with you talking about your parents instilling in you the importance of honor and duty. And I think the audience would agree that you are the very personification of honor and duty. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. What a great honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. My thanks to Vice President Biden, to our sponsors, St. David's Healthcare and the Moody Foundation. And thanks to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.